In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, a group of Pharisees approach Jesus, and one of the lawyers or the scribes comes out of the group and comes up to Jesus, and he says to him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Christ in responding to this lawyer, this expert in the law, boils down the kingdom of God to two essentials. He takes what we, we want to know more and more about, things that he taught throughout the three years on the road, and he boils it down to these two essentials. And it's like saying, get this right, and it will come into place. In 1 Timothy, we have looked at the first three chapters, and we found great instruction for the church, for leadership, warnings for Uh, false teachers and their teachings, roles within the church, worship. How do we conduct worship? In the passage, though, this morning, Paul, the man whom the Lord is writing through, stops for a moment, and essentially he says, Timothy, church, here is the very center of my letter. Here is the essence of what I'm saying. Everything I'm writing boils down to this. Get this right and the rest will line up into place. Now the title, if you picked up one of the sheets, is God's House Rules. Paul portrays here the importance of living rightly in God's house. But there's another way to read that. And that's to remember the setting of this letter. Where is this letter being sent to? That's a real question. Where is this letter being sent to? It's being sent to the city of Ephesus. Amen. To Timothy in particular in the city of Ephesus. What is the most spectacular and influential structure or building in that city? The pagan temple, right. The temple of Artemis or Diana. That stands out above all else and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But that sticks out in just dramatic fashion over that city. That house or temple had rules. That idolatry had expectations of those who would come in to the building and those that would be a part of their idolatry. Remember that many of the men and women that are now worshiping Jesus Christ with Timothy, had lived daily in this idolatry and perversion of Artemis. That temple's rules were ingrained in their minds from early childhood. That's all they'd known about a God, about worship. But that is who they were. Who they were. Paul wrote another church surrounded by similar idolatry saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. This is a fantastic encouragement. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Isn't that awesome? Such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That's who they were. But now it is time to learn the ways of their new God. The true God. The living God. God's house rules over Artemis and Diana and Caesar and Mecca and Moscow and Beijing and Washington, D.C. God's house rules. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that we only grasp such a small amount of your glory, your sovereignty, your dominion, your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And we beg you, Father, and I, and I pray that you would draw all of our hearts and minds to this point that we beg you, Father, to, to show yourself to us this morning in your word. Please, Father, you know my weaknesses and, and you know who I am. Please speak in spite of me, through me, but that your spirit would speak to the hearts and minds of every man and woman, young and old, here this morning, that we would see Jesus, that we would see your church, and we would walk with you, that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. In your name we pray, amen. This message must arrive. That's what's on Paul's heart. It says in verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. These things I write. Paul tells us plainly why he is writing these things. It's so that Timothy and the Ephesians church know how to live as God's people. But what are these things that he's talking about? These things that he's writing. Well, the last two weeks, we have read and studied the requirements for church leadership in chapter 3. Prior to that, we examined proper worship and the roles of men and women in worship and in the church leadership. Warnings against teachers of false doctrine were a big part of the first chapter. Now in the weeks ahead, chapters 4 through 6, it will teach us further about ministry in the church, about personal life, about relationships with others, and many other things in the weeks ahead. These things that Paul is talking about here appear to be a sweeping statement about the general purpose of the entire letter. Already Paul has laid out important instruction, but he has much more ahead for us to learn. There's a lot more tucked into this letter. And look what he says though. Though I hope to come to you sooner. I hope to come to you sooner. It's believed that Paul is writing Timothy from the city or the area of Macedonia. He also writes a letter to Titus at about this same time. And in this letter to Titus, he mentions going up to the city of Nicopolis to spend that winter. He apparently did that. And he apparently doesn't know if or when he may ever return to Ephesus. In fact, it is not recorded that Paul ever did arrive on the shores of that city again. So here he is, he's honest. He says openly that what he would really like to do is to come and give these instructions to Timothy face to face. That's what he longed for. And it seems like the most effective way, an effective way to convey the urgency and specifics of his message. It really, by outward appearance, it all seems to be a good plan. And it comes from a very sincere heart of love for Timothy and the struggling church there in Ephesus. There's no hint of a selfish desire here or, or a reluctance and willingness to sacrifice on the part of Paul. He has the best of intentions, but that is not God's will. This little phrase is extremely important to those who desire to serve God. It is a short personal confession from the heart of a humble, Holy Spirit-filled, and powerfully effective apostle, probably the most powerfully effective apostle, Paul. Of any person in the New Testament, if you had to say, who knew God? Paul did. If there was anyone in there that you thought hungered and thirsted after God, wasn't it Paul? It was Paul did. In fact, who wrote over, over a quarter of the inspired word of God in the New Testament? Paul did. Yet what became of his hope and his plan? There are times when even with right intentions and a humble heart, you and I, we have a plan with which we really do want to honor and serve Christ. But it's not God's plan. Paul's personal hopes are thwarted, but he is not. 
He moves ahead with what we could call a contingency plan. God's message is so important that it must be received by Timothy, whether in person by Paul or not. Paul's desire has nothing to do with being a control freak or desiring to gain prestige or power. This message is what matters. The message is what matters and Paul is completely committed to that. So in person or not, this message must come to you, Timothy. Factor in also. Think about this. If Paul had traveled in person to speak with Timothy, First and Second Timothy would not exist to teach, encourage, and correct us this morning. The life-changing and church-changing words of God contained in these books would never have been written. We and millions more around the globe through the last 2,000 years have been beneficiaries of Paul's unrealized hope. It resulted in these letters that we study today that were written to his spiritual son, Timothy. At another time in the book of Acts, Paul desired to preach the gospel boldly to a new unreached region of lost souls. What, what could be a higher goal than that? Acts 16, verse 6 through 9. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. One of the commentators wrote about this passage. Having passed through Phrygian and Galatian region, Paul decided to move further west in the province of Asia. That region was an important one. And there would later be churches in such cities as Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamum, and Thyatira. For now, however, God had other plans for the missionaries. And somehow, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. With the way west blocked, the missionaries turned north into Mycenae, the region north of Asia. But when they tried to go further north into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Now, there is no indication of how they were prevented, but with nowhere else to turn, they came down to Troas as a port on the Aegean Sea. End quote. The point is that although Paul was unable to return and visit Timothy in person, nor was he able to travel into Asia or Mycenae at that time to preach the gospel. What did he do? He surrendered his own plans fully to his sovereign God. It was not about self-fulfillment. It was not about a desire to be a recognized apostle. Paul's obsession was with the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel at any cost and by any means directed by Jesus Christ. We have seen that Paul's inability to return to Timothy in Ephesus resulted in letters giving instruction to Timothy and the Ephesian church as well as millions of God's people for the next 2,000 years. In Acts, Paul's intention to preach the life-saving gospel in Asia and then in Mycenae were blocked. How could that be good? How could that be good? Verse 9, Acts 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for many days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out, to the, out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met us there. Or to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. 
She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And we see in the course of time in that chapter in Acts 16 that Paul runs into some problems. And he's arrested and thrown into prison. And what happens there? The jailer is won to Christ and his whole household comes to Christ. In this city of Philippi, a very humble, poor, but exceedingly generous church was planted. It is amazing what goes there. This is how Paul described the Philippian church in 2 Corinthians 8. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us to earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. What a fantastic result from being blocked out of the mission field originally desired. You see what's happening here. Paul was eager to follow God wherever he led. And yes, he had thoughts and dreams and, and plans. But what would have happened if he had gone into Asia and Philippi had been left unreached? And then God in his timing brings Paul to these different areas. But these happen. And I know that's happened to many of you. It has happened to me. There are still dreams and hopes that I have for ministry. That I don't know will ever come to be. But I haven't given up on them. And in the meantime, I'm trying to serve God in whatever way he would have. And I know many of you are in that same boat. We don't know where God will have us. And who knows? Maybe by the thwarted plan of one of you or me something dramatic would be done that we wouldn't even know about. And it would reach the hearts of men and women 2,000 years ago in a little city in Kansas, which wasn't even known about by Paul, and change lives. If your hopes for the glory of God in your life, your family, your work, your ministry, if they've been thwarted or delayed or revised, take heart. You are in good company with Paul and millions of others. Know that God's will is never thwarted. If after carefully examination, careful examination of your heart motives, trust that God will accomplish His great purposes even in and through your prevented plans. Seek Him and also see what His contingency plans may be in the meantime. What would He have you do? Then Paul goes on and he says in verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. There's a significance in this message. There is a conduct that God desires. Paul writes so Timothy will know how to conduct himself and teach the church likewise. Now the word know here is, is not theoretical or philosophical. It is described as the possession of knowledge or skill necessary to accomplish a desired goal. It is a practical knowledge for real life change. He is to know how to conduct himself. Anastrepho. It is a Greek word that means how to behave in the presence of God and his people. And it is in a verb form telling us that this is a consistent pattern of life. God is giving them not a one-off advice. He is giving them a new way of living in this letter that he is sending through the hand of Paul to the man Timothy. God is sending them a new way of living. And there is a location for this way of living. He goes on to say, conduct yourself in the house of God. Some of your versions say household. It's the word oikos. And household is probably more appropriate in verses 4, 5, and 12 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's translated as household. But whether it's house or household, Paul is not talking about a brick and mortar or a stucco building located somewhere in the city of Ephesus. What he's talking about here is family. The household of God. The family of God. 
If you have repented, if you have believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, you became a child of God. As many as received him, wrote John in chapter 1, verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And so, if you are a child of God, you are a part of the household of God, or the house of, house of God. God uses this word often through his New Testament writers. Paul in Ephesians 2, Now therefore you are no longer strangers, you're not foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Galatians 6, Therefore as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house you are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. You are members of this family, this household, that Paul is writing instruction to right now. And it says it is the house of the living God. It probably literally could read the living God's church. The church of the living God. Its citizens are the ecclesia. It's translated the called out ones. That's who's a part of this household of God. And what are they called out of? Well, they're called out of the world. The world which every one of us were born into. We were born with that sin nature. We were born with the depravity of sin, touching every area of our life. That's what we were called out of. We were called out of sin. We were called out of death. We were called out of darkness and condemnation. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, but you, you members of the household of God, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You who once, you were not a people. You were not a people. You were people walking steadily towards that precipice to fall into hell for eternity. You were lost. You were in the dark. You had no sight whatsoever. I was leading that pack into destruction. That's where we were. But now we've been called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. We were not a people, but we are now the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. We are the ecclesia. And this ecclesia, this church, is the, per, the possession of, of the living God. He said, the ecclesia of the living God, it is owned by the living God. You see, he purchased us by paying the highest price tag ever demanded for anything in the universe. In fact, the universe itself, in its entirety, is not worth this price. But God paid it. He paid it out of love. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's how we were purchased. That's why we belong to him. He purchased us with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. His death was in payment for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the demonstration of God's love. While we were his enemies, he reconciled us through the death of his son. What a, what a great God that would pay the highest of price for the most worthless of possessions and transform us into a completely different people. And then, to look at that little phrase one more time, by specific intent, Paul declares the possession of or the ecclesia of the living God. This letter is addressed to God's people in a sprawling city 
whose fame is derived from an elaborate temple filled with lifeless dead idolatry, the temple of Artemis. Riken writes, But however impressive it seemed from the outside, it was utterly devoid of life. The goddess in the temple was nothing more than a dead idol. End quote. As different as night and day, black and white, and death and life, is every other religion when placed alongside the living God, our Savior Jesus Christ. It is dramatic. There is nothing more dramatic than the dead idolatry and the living God. It is written in Psalm 115. Well, excuse me, let me back up. Paul states this contrast better than I could here in 2 Corinthians 6. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, listen to what God said. This is quoted from the Old Testament. Paul says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He is our God. He promises He will walk among us. He is here this morning walking among us. It says that He is our Father and that we are His sons and daughters. He lives. He lives for eternity. Dead idols, on the other hand, are realistically described in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And as we've talked before, we perhaps have no one in here who has a little idol sitting on the bedstand or, or somewhere in the kitchen, the living room. But we've become more sophisticated. And we have idols of all measures that rip us away from God, that distract our time, that have more allegiance to us than the Word of God does. And you know what those are. Do not fall prey to the idolatry of this century. It is just as dead and empty as it was in the days that psalm was written. You see, the living God is declared by the Old Testament prophets this way. Joshua, he said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. David David spoke to the men who stood by him in 1 Samuel 17. What shall be, be done for the man who kills this Philistine, Goliath, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Jeremiah in chapter 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth will tremble. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. The living God is the God of the New Testament writers. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered and said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, these idols, to the living God. Who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that are in them. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians verse 1, or verse 9, chapter 1. It contrasts idolatry and the living God. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Look at the dramatic change in the Thessalonians. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This living God's church 
is then described as the pillar and ground of the truth. William Barclay describes the temple of Diana in this way. He says, It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of its features was its pillars. It contained 127 pillars. Every one of them a gift from a different king. All were made of a marble. All were made of marble. And some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. End quote. Paul uses a picture of this ornate, lavish, dead idol temple with its towering pillars and solid buttresses constantly on display before the eyes of the Ephesians. And he says, In the same way the pillars and foundation buttresses of the Artemis temple hold it up, the church serves as a support structure to uphold the truth of God. This truth that is upheld is the divine revelation of God. It is contained in His Word. It is Christ Jesus. It is the Logos. For Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. As one writer described it, it is the solemn responsibility of every church to solidly, immovably, unshakably uphold the truth of God's Word. The church does not invent the truth. And alters it only at the cost of judgment. It is to support and safeguard it. It is a sacred saving treasure. Given to sinners for their forgiveness. And to believers for their sanctification and edification. That they might live for the glory of God. The church has the stewardship of scripture. The duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. That is our role. We are to lift up this word of God, to present it, to support it, to defend it. Riken says the ultimate bedrock foundation of the church is the word of God spoken by the prophets of the Old Testament, written by the apostles of the New Testament, and made incarnate by Christ Jesus himself. So how do we do this? If this is our responsibility, how do we do this? How do we uphold the glorious word of God? We read it. We memorize it. We study it. We meditate on it. We obey it. And we proclaim it. We read it. We memorize it. We study it. We meditate on it. We obey it. And we proclaim it. Some may be thinking, that's a pretty tall order. But we do that in witnessing. We do that when we write. We do that when we counsel. We do that in an encouragement to others. We do it in correction. It takes place. It takes place in your marriage. It takes place as you raise your children. It takes place with co-workers when you share the word of God. With fellow students. With our parents. With those who trust us. And with those who hate us. We share the word of God. But if you don't take seriously the command in scripture. Given to sec- in 2 Timothy. Study to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You will not and cannot fulfill this God-given responsibility. I, I exhort you, you cannot fulfill this responsibility unless you will commit yourself to the word of God. Paul now describes in this last verse with complete amazement. Look at how he writes there. The center of this truth. The center of this truth that we uphold. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the message. And without controversy, wrote Paul, great is the mystery of godliness. Literally, without controversy here means to say the same thing. All who know this truth agree. It is beyond dispute. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now listen to that statement. Great is the mystery of godliness. Acts 19, verse 28. The citizens of Ephesus, they cry out for two hours in defiance against the God of the Christians, yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis, king of the Ephesians, or God of the Ephesians. Two hours, they cry. Paul 
turns the Ephesian culture and religion on its ear and he declares, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness, the gospel. You see, a mystery here is a truth that was hidden but has now been revealed in the New Testament scriptures. This mystery, now revealed, is the Son of God. The Son of God literally taking on the form of a mortal man to bring the gospel in word and in deed. He fulfilled what the gospel is. By which all men may be declared by God to be godly. It is a great mystery that we have the great privilege of knowing and understanding. Romans 16 verse 25 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. We are the great recipients of the revelation of that mystery. And here Paul unfolds it for us. He unpacks it in six pieces. Some say it's chronological to a degree, but it seems to kind of pull apart at some points. It looks very clearly to be a hymn that was probably written sometime early in the life of the church. It starts with six verbs are in the same grammatical tense. Uh, and one author even said that all six of those rhyme in Greek. I don't know if they do or not. I didn't see that written anywhere else. But it's clearly understood this to be a beautiful hymn. But it's a beautiful hymn that states truth in amazing ways. First of all, he was manifest in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. He was revealed to us. How? Think about all the ways that God could have made himself known to us. Through lightning, through thunders, through tsunamis, through earthquakes, through, through stupendous features in the sky. No. God revealed himself. He manifested to himself to us by becoming a human being like you and me. He was not brought into existence or created. He has always been and never was not. But now he has been, the word there manifested means made visible to us. We see God. And the word became flesh, John wrote in chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Philippians chapter 2. Beautiful picture of the movement of God to take this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. Meaning that he didn't hold on to his status who he was as if somebody could take it from him. He did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. And he took the form of a slave. A slave, mind you. There's intention in that. And he came in the likeness of men. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that doesn't mean he was created. And it doesn't mean in some way that he was, came to be when he was born. What that means, as we've talked many times, is that he had the right of primogenitor. He was in all ways the pinnacle of God's person. And he led us as our elder brother. He is the one who has all rights and privileges as a firstborn, though he has existed forever. And this is not sinful flesh. He came in the flesh, but it's not sinful flesh. It's actual humanness, mortality. Romans 1 Verse 3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. What, is that, what was that like to see God born? It's amazing. Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, 
who himself bore our sins in his own flesh, in his own body on the tree, that we haven't died to sins, that we might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So he was manifested in the flesh and he was justified or vindicated in the spirit. The spirit of God. The spirit of God vindicated or proved Jesus Christ to be the son of God throughout his earthly ministry from birth to resurrection. From condescension to complete ascension into heaven. In his birth. Luke one thirty five, And the angels answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. At his baptism, Matthew 3, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Again, intentional. That could have happened all invisibly, and nobody would have had to know it, but God wanted men to see that the Spirit of God was upon his Son. When Jesus performed miracles and cast out demons, the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then in the final deliverance from death and the resurrection of Christ, the Spirit of God was instrumentally essential. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Romans 1, 3, and 4, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. The Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. The Reformed Study Bible says, Christ's resurrection vindicated Him by overturning the guilty verdict of the ungodly world's court. The world's court judged him to be in the wrong and a liar and false teacher. But the resurrection proved, vindicated him that he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He is the Son of God. And then it says he was seen by angels. And it doesn't really qualify here whether it's fallen angels or heavenly angels. So I've got both here. Fallen angels. Luke 4, 33. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had been had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How would that demon have known? Because at one time he served that Prince of Peace, that Messiah in the heavenly realms before he was cast out. And he bore witness. The fallen angels have seen him. Luke 4, 40-41, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out, many crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And the heavenly angels. They removed the stone in Matthew 28, 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Heavenly angels to the women at the tomb in Luke 24. Then it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And then at Christ's ascension. Acts 1 verse 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So he was seen of angels. Fourthly, he was preached among the nations. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Acts 1, 8. 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Some of your versions say preached among the Gentiles. Some say nations. It it includes all manner of people. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Following Christ's resurrection, the gospel of Christ Jesus exploded on the world scene as Paul and Peter and the other apostles began to move throughout the known world preaching the gospel. Fifthly, he was believed on in the world. Now I'm going to give you several here. Here's a few. He was believed on in the world, the Samaritan woman at the well. John 4. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. The Syrophoenician woman with the sixth son in Mark chapter 7. For a woman whose young daughter, excuse me, with a, with a sick daughter, had an unclean spirit heard about, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumb. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. The centurion at the cross. Matthew 27. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Despised crook of a tax man, Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Demon-filled and outcast women. In Luke chapter 8. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching. Then bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. Out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna the wife of Chusa. Herod's steward. Then Susanna. And many others who provided for him of their substance. We go on into the New Testament uh, Acts. In chapter 8, you have the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip said to him, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You have the centurion Cornelius with Peter, who believed on Christ. You have many more in Acts chapter 2, 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. He was believed on in the world. And then finally, he was taken up or he was received in glory. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself, Jesus, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He is exalted, he is lifted up, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This great mystery of godliness This mystery of godliness has now been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The hope of this great Christ is to save men and women from eternal judgment. The promise of this great Christ is to lead and bless and keep his own whom he bought for his glory. How then, returning to the initial part of this sermon, do you conduct yourself in God's family? How will you do that now? What have you learned from the Word of God? Will there be any change? How do you conduct yourself in God's family? You begin with the person of Jesus Christ. 
and you learn his word and proclaim it, study it, meditate it, read it, memorize it, feed on it. Joshua wrote in chapter 1, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, day and night, that you may observe to do everything that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says it more succinctly. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Be diligent brothers and sisters, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This may come across as rebuke or, or whatever it is. I, I don't intend it to be that, but, but brothers and sisters, we are in the, in the battlefield just like, like Timothy was. There's false teaching everywhere, even among the churches. There are temptations everywhere that are pulling and, and, and shredding ministers of the gospel and the people that follow them. If we do not stand firm and dig deep into the word of God, we will be next. Don't fool yourself. You must, you must seek after Christ. To those of you who still walk in darkness, who refuse the lordship of Christ, Here's another starting point from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works so that you may serve the living God? If you are lost, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have resisted, you've resisted him, turn, repent, and follow. The blood of Christ will take away your sin. And you can serve this living God and be part of this household of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I know it's deep. There's much there. It was three verses, but the final verse itself is is worthy of many, many messages. Our hearts are probably full and tired. and We pray, Lord, that you would awaken them, that you would awaken them by your Holy Spirit to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord. And we ask that not so that our lives would be benefited, which they will be. You've promised us that. But we ask that so that you will receive great glory and so that men and women who are lost will see the gospel, will hear the gospel from us. Lord, use us. Create in us hearts aflame for Jesus. Give us a hunger and thirst after your word and open it to us, Lord. I thank you for these brothers and sisters. So many of them love your word. They dig in deep. Lord, feed them, use them. And Lord, I pray that you would send us out in this city, in this country, even in this world, Lord, that you would send more from our our small little church here to preach the gospel to the lost, to tell the world about this Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.